Hey y'all, it's Kyle here of the Orthodoxical Podcast, and I am pumped to be able to give y'all this new episode featuring my good friend, Terry TJ Stokes. Now, TJ and I went to the fellows program together, and he's just a really solid dude, uh, you know, definitely someone that I look up to in a lot of ways. And he, what I love about TJ is that he always scratches the itch that I have of biblical and pop culture kind of humor mixing together. Uh, TJ is a, a recent graduate of Princeton Seminary. He's studying to be an Episcopal priest, and he's more probably known for uh, writing these fun little uh, prayers called collects on uh, Instagram. And so he writes them about a whole bunch of different things, and uh, some of them are really funny, others of them are really deep and, and profound and meaningful. All of them are really awesome. And he writes those uh, under the handle at prayers from Terry. So you should definitely go and, and check that out when you get the chance. And he actually is going to have a book of those coming out uh, sometime in the near future. And TJ and I got to sit down and talk about uh, liturgy and, and how liturgy is becoming a lot more popular and formative in our society and we talked about spiritual formation the the di dynamics of worship that is both expressive and formative and, and just kind of how we worship in general and it's a really great conversation i'm excited for you all to listen in and as always if you could rate it subscribe to it download do all that fun stuff we greatly appreciate it all right y'all let's get to the interview with terry tj stokes Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orthodoxical Podcast. My name is Kyle Bumgarter, and I am your host, and I am joined by my good friend, Terry John Stokes, the, the right reverend Terry Stokes, uh, <laughs> aka TJ. Uh, for those of you who don't know, TJ is a, a recent graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he is pursuing the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, and he is currently a lay minister for Highland. It's a Highland Reformed Church, right? Reformed Church of Highland Park. Yeah. yeah. Well, TJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Yeah. So TJ, for, um, for our listeners, could you give like a, a brief sort of theological, like a brief overview of your theological journey and your background? Because um, I think you have a very interesting sort of trajectory that you've, you've found yourself on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a sort of broadly evangelical tradition. Mm -hmm. I went to um, big non-denominational churches in California and then a big Southern Baptist church in Hampton, Virginia, where I lived for middle school and high school. So um, there's so many things that I continue to draw from, from that tradition, even to this day. I'm really blessed to have the resources, you know, two full-time youth pastors um, our own building, the, the mission trips, camps, retreats. Um, and I think for me, what I think about is the fact that church was exciting. Um, it was um, it was made accessible culturally in terms of youth culture and I guess generally, generationally as well. So coming to church and knowing that there's going to be um, games to play and music that is um, appropriate for, for where my 
cultural taste lie. Um, that I think for me was the most, um, the thing that made taking ownership of my, my spirituality, um, something that really stuck over the years and wasn't like, oh, okay, I was taught this or I was spoon fed this for 18 years. Now I'm out on my own and I don't have that kind of transitional, transitional period of like, okay, how do I sort of take ownership of this for myself? So, um, went to college and, uh, entered a more progressive space overall, but kind of still surrounded myself with like-minded folks from similar uh, Christian backgrounds. Um, and where'd you go to college? I went to Yale for college. Uh, heard of it. <laughs> heard a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, did did, uh, did crew uh, campus fellowship in college. And so it was like kind of an evangelical skewing fellowship. Um, went to a really awesome sort of charismatic leaning black church though. So that kind of opened me up to some new ways of worshiping. Um, there were always people singing in tongues and the banners and the liturgical dance and um, just, yeah, a lot of, a lot of great stuff that um, made me more, made, made me um, excited about delving a little bit more into the black church tradition uh, as opposed to having grown up in predominantly white churches. So yeah, went from there to uh, where we met, uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Shout so out Trinity. Was, hey, so that was my uh, introduction to formal liturgy and um, the main, well, actually that's, I was going to say the mainline tradition. The PCA is interesting because I think there's like an even distribution of like mainline spirituality and evangelical spirituality. Um, but given that it was Presbyterian, you know, that was my introduction to any kind of staunch denominational affiliation because the church I went to in middle school and high school, even though it was Baptist and even though that affected the culture a lot, it's still kind of presented as like the seeker friendly non-denom church, which I think is always the case when you get to a certain size. So I, I'm glad you said that. And really, I feel like I've seen other people say that on Twitter because I thought I was the only one who kind of had this phenomenon of like, they grew up thinking that their church was non-denominational and the whole time it was Southern Baptist. Right, right. <laughs> like people were like, oh yeah, like I went to a non-denominational church and like, nah, no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> like they may have said that, but they were definitely. Right. I was like, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. So like, there's there's things that pop up that you don't realize until later. Like, oh, the uh, the pastor's daughter got married and there was no father daughter dance at the wedding. Like all these kind of like Baptist yeah. things that you don't really realize until after the fact. Um, so yeah, so. Uh, Trinity was a was was a time where I came into service and I was like, oh, everything is written down in this on this bulletin, this order of worship. I don't really love the idea of everything being scripted out. There should be some room for spontaneity. Um, and then yeah, just like the fact that I was kind of forced to give it a real shot um, because I it was my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> over time, I feel like God kind of just opened me up to it and helped me to find the beauty in it. And um, one thing that we discussed in the program at, at Trinity was how there, there can be an emphasis on novelty um, and personal expressiveness in a lot of evangelical worship. And taken to the extreme, it can come to a point where the, the metric of your faithfulness in worship or the effectiveness in worship is how you feel. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So I think being in that formal liturgical context for the first time helped me to really hammer home the idea that it's a, it's called a service because we're doing a service to God. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily about how you feel or the the effectiveness that you can perceive um, the fruit of it that you perceive coming out of it for you, you know, saying um, the, the Lord's prayer every week, even though it's not necessarily the thing that you feel most exuberantly in your spirit or viscerally, or like singing a song of lament, even if you might not feel particularly mournful in that moment, all these ways in which you're giving your act of faithfulness to God and trusting that God is shaping you through it, even if you can't necessarily perceive it on an emotional level. So that was a great beginning for me um introduction to that tradition and then um, a family from that church introduced me to an episcopal church on the upper west side of manhattan that i worked at during my first year of seminary so that was another uh great example of uh, formal liturgy married with great community ministry um and actually a lot of folks at that church were from either non-church backgrounds or evangelical backgrounds so it made it very accessible to me Um, So to make a long story short, that was my on-ramp to the Episcopal tradition, and I got confirmed last year, and that's when I um, started to get into the Book of Common Prayer and morning prayer, evening prayer, and just kind of fell in love with that structure. Dude, that's awesome. It's so cool to see, like, how, again, like, how much you've kind of shifted from these very, very different spaces in terms of, like, you know, quote unquote, non-denominational, so like Baptist, uh, Baptist, but then also Presbyterian, uh, charismatic, uh, and then, you know, the Episcopal church and how all of those things still kind of inform your, your spiritual identity is just, is really cool to me. So kind of shifting then, you know, talk, uh, I wanted to have you on because you're, you run an Instagram account called prayers from Terry, and it's really based on kind of the, uh, the sort of liturgical format of, of writing collects and, and prayers. So I guess like for, for a lot of people um, who may not even know, like what would you say is your definition of liturgy? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. Um, I'd say liturgy is a form of worship. If I can make it as simple as I possibly could. And the, the, the thing is, every church has liturgy, right? And so that's why I'm always very careful to say formal liturgy and informal liturgy. Because, you know, you go to your non-denominational church and they have a way of doing things that repeats every week. You know, we have the announcements after the third song and then we have a little transitional promotional video in between this and this. And like, that's liturgy too. Yes, dude, so it's yes. Not like written down in a little bulletin. Um, yeah, so... For, yeah, for me, I would just consider liturgy to be any kind of like order of worship, um, any habitual way in which we order our worship. And that can be Sunday morning worship. It can be evening prayer, what have you. And so Trinity was your first experience with, with a more like liturgical kind of style, correct? Yeah, just I loved the intentionality of how they organized their liturgy around adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Um, acts for short and how that kind of creates this arc where you can always uh, depend on okay when I come into church maybe I had an argument with my wife on the way over maybe I was trying to wrangle the kids but I know that there's going to be a a call to worship 
where I realized that it's not me that decides to worship, it's God's spirit that invites me into worship. And then there'll be a time of adoration and confession, just kind of like covering all of the major um, idioms in which we relate to God. So that for me was like, yeah, very, very mind blowing as, as, a, as a contrast to what I kind of call like revival or um, great awakening liturgy, which is like, let's have some rousing music to get people ready for the sermon. Then we'll have the sermon, which gets people ready for the altar call. And then we'll have the altar call. And so when you're like, when you're on the frontier, uh, you, you have to kind of just, or maybe you don't have to, but the way that it happened for us was that we pared away all the things that we considered to be, um, superfluous. So the creeds and, the the like the ancient liturgical elements um the lord's prayer um the sacraments in many cases are just like pairing back to once a month or even less than that um and then you kind of just get to a point where you think okay so music a, a rousing kind of gospel message and then the altar call that's what those are the most basic elements of worship and then you have several movements over the course of American history that are sort of like a call to return to a more ancient and robust liturgy. So yeah, for me to, um, to encounter places like Trinity was, was really a blessing because so many times I feel like we, we have an anemic, we have like a, a, a milk faith, like we don't, we don't go to the meat, we just like stay with the milk. And the, the meat is right within our tradition, but we just don't engage with it for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I guess I'm kind of wondering what were some of the, um, what were some of the, the factors that kind of led people to start to, like you said, pare back um, the, the quote unquote traditional worship service of those, you know, those, traditional elements of, of the sacraments, of saying the creeds, of um, structuring your worship in a certain way. Like, I, I'm just wondering, like, was it the kind of like mega church movement that started in the 80s where it was like, all right, we need to like make this kind of just as simple as possible and, and more like consumable? Or was it just like a shift away from kind of high church uh, sort, you know, kind of like fear of that? What, what were some of the, the factors there? Yeah. Um, first, couple of things that come to mind, as you mentioned, are um, sort of this movement away from high church because of its association with Rome. Mm. So, you know, the, the very strong Protestant underpinning, under, underpinnings of the United States, there's almost like a, a, a culture, a cultural rejection rather than a theological rejection of um, formal liturgy in many cases. Um, and then sort of, as I alluded to earlier, there's just kind of this revival, revival movement, mm -hmm. several revival movements um, that kind of spread across the United States where, as you mentioned, it's like about making it as simple as possible. Like, how can we boil down the, the robust richness of our tradition in the most simple way to get the most people to come to this tent revival and the most people to come to the mercy seat and pray a sinner's prayer? So yeah, it's like, yeah, why would we, why would we say the Lord's prayer? Why would we repeat the Nicene Creed? Those aren't things that'll, I mean, in, in that, in that particular thinking, which is may, may or may, may or may not be correct. These are not things that will get people down the aisle. Um, these are not things that we need to 
focus on for this particular revival. But the problem is, though that that form of liturgy wasn't necessarily meant to be the way that the permanent local churches operated. It was like, you know, we're we're moving through uh, kind of following the the line of expansion, uh, colonial settlement uh, across America, and so this isn't meant to be like a permanent way of worshiping. This is like kind of a, a temporary thing. But the churches that are left behind in these new towns don't have anything else to look to. So they just think, oh, well, the the way that we encountered worship was this revival format. And so we're just going to adopt that into our local churches. Cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting just to think about like what sort of leads to the ways and uh like you said, I've always been fascinated that for me, I heard, I did not know what a liturgy was like you until I came to Trinity. And my, my concept of, of liturgical worship was kind of my like dividing line, I think between of what I thought of church. Like in my mind, I was like, there are two kinds of churches. There are, uh, there are like what I would now call low church uh, like low church kind of styles of worship. And then there was like the Catholic, mm-hmm. what we would now call high church, which now, you know, like I know that there's like Episcopal and Anglican and like all these different denominations. But I think it's interesting that um, there's so many like little facets and like, and and what people focus on that we don't even really think about like, okay, like these are intentional choices that people are making with um, with their worship style and, and kind of how they're going. Uh, how they're going about worship. Uh, so how uh, how then did you start, um, how did you come to start your, your very popular Instagram account, Prayers from Terry? Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Which to anyone who's listening to this, all five of you, um, <laughs> you should immediately after this, go follow at prayers from Terry on Instagram. I promise you, you will be very blessed by it. Um, yeah. So I started, um, living with four guys at Princeton seminary, my second year of seminary. And we did, um, we had an intentional community together. And one of the things that was part of our rule of life was, um, morning prayer every weekday. So that was my introduction to that uh, form of spirituality. And yeah, I just loved the way in which it, um, similarly to what we were saying earlier, um, just creates a structure for devotion that's not dependent on um, your ability to extract insight from scripture, not dependent on how, um, how expressive you feel in prayer in that moment just you can just like fall into into the structure of it and know that there's some real um grace that's being infused to you through it so that was yeah that was my 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 introduction to formal prayers that um are that are that are just written there in the back of the book of common prayer for you to use um looking at it right now and you know, there's prayers such as for a church convention or meeting, for church musicians and artists, uh, for cities, for towns and rural areas. So growing up, <laughs> there was such a knee-jerk reaction against that because it was like, oh, if if it's written down, it's not authentic. It's not in the moment. You need like when you pray, you need to like just be speaking from the heart. 
Um, and so it took a long time to kind of unlearn that and to just see it as, okay, well, there's nothing new under the sun. So the, these concerns from the saints of 50 years ago, 200 years ago, are largely going to be my concerns as well. And there's something to be said for um, thinking through the way that they articulated those concerns to God and realizing that I can very much touch and agree with those words in the same way we, where we agree with the words of the psalmist and, and so on and so forth. So um, I started doing um, a kind of the full-fledged morning prayer at the Episcopal Church down the street from me in August of last year, um, so about a year, a year ago. And um, then around November, I have the opportunity to um, sort of write and organize the liturgy for my church's first celebration of the Feast of Peter Williams, who was our first rector and the second Black man ordained in the Episcopal Church. So among um, the tasks that I have for that is uh, to write a collect. Um, every Episcopal service begins with the collect of the week. And so special services like that will have a, a, a special collect that kind of honors the life of that particular saint and um, expands, or I should say it, um, it sets, sets forth a model for how the folks praying that, that prayer can um, embody that person's spirituality and devotion to God. So I wrote that collect and uh, really enjoyed the process of it. Uh, it struck me as a new kind of spiritual practice where um, there's something very much to be said for sitting down, kind of throwing. So the way I do it is I like throw all the phrases and keywords that I want in it just into a document. And then I kind of put, put, put uh, linking words together. And um, yeah, there's something to be said for like that process, that, that way of praying um, where the, the ideas and the, the supplications, the intercessions that you have for God just kind of sink into your spirit in a different way because you are writing it down. And of course, you can go back to it over and over again, and it grows with you over time. So all that to say, I had seen a few months prior to that, someone on Twitter, so there's like a kind of like a weird Anglican Twitter, sub-Twitter community. Um, so I had seen someone on their post, uh, a, a, a collect for when, for when chips must be eaten quietly. And they had it, uh, they had it uh, in like the, the official font of the Book of Common Prayer and like, <laughs> the funniest thing in the world. And like ever since then, I've tried to like find that person so I could like connect with them and say like, you gave me this amazing, oh, like I stole your amazing idea. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I have no idea how to find that person. Um, so yeah, come November, after I uh, help organize the liturgy for that service, I had gone on a first date and I, uh, as I always do, was like getting way into my feelings way too quickly. And so I was like, how can I channel this energy in a more constructive way rather than just obsessing over this person and like creating this very ideal picture of them in my head. So I was like, let me write a prayer about it. So I wrote a collect uh, entitled for when one is enamored, but must be chill about it. Very much in the same vein of for when chips must be eaten quietly, kind of like very tongue in cheek, but like also like, you know, um, I went from a real place. Earnest, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Sort of earnestly, earnestly offered. Um, so I texted it to a couple of friends and they enjoyed it. And then I tweeted it out and people enjoyed it there. So I started tweeting um, similar prayers. I would write maybe one a day, um, spanning topics like 
for when one has just gotten ghosted or uh, for when one is getting trolled on the internet. So just kind of like bringing these very uh, contemporary concerns into that more traditional space of liturgy. And yeah, people, that like kind of be, became my whole thing on Twitter. Um, and then I had a couple of people reach out to me to encourage me to start an Instagram, um, thinking that it would do a little bit better on Instagram just in terms of the medium. And that turned out to be very true. Within a couple weeks of being on Instagram, uh, things just kind of blew up. And uh, it became a really awesome space for me to just connect with people. And I started doing live uh, streaming evening prayer a couple months in. So yeah, it's been a blessing. Dude, that is so cool. I love just kind of the, I don't know, I, I've been a big, I really love, and I think this is kind of just true of your, our friendship is that like, for me, I think you've always kind of scratched that itch of like combining the, these very contemporary things with like sort of religious humor and underpinnings. And so I've just, I've loved the prayers that you've put out about like, um, like one of my favorite ones that you've written was about like getting ready to play basketball. Yeah. And just the way that it was like incorporating like this very religious language, but then also being like, Lord, let me cross with ankles in thy mercy and like stuff like that. It's just my favorite sort of, I don't know, man, that's like a very like special place in my heart for that kind of, uh, for that kind of liturgy. Yeah. Um, what are, what are some of like your favorite ones that you've had the opportunity to write? Yeah, I was, I mean, that, the one that you bring up, uh, I think it's called For Before Hooping. Uh, yeah. It's like a great example because for me, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's this whole project has shown me that humor is an amazing rhetorical device for spiritual writing. Mm, say that one more time, please. Yeah, humor <laughs> is a strong rhetorical device for spiritual writing. And Boom. what I mean by that is, <laughs> I think that like, in the same way that music is a particular language that taps into things, it almost like to the exclusion of other, of any other way of communication. I think humor is similar where, um, whether it's tongue in cheek or satirical or dad jokes or what have you, it's like just a, pr a particular part of our brain and a particular part of our soul that is hard to tap into through any other idiom. And so when you bring humor into the space of prayer and particularly formal prayer, I think it really like one is a memorization device or like internalization device. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the prayers that I've written that have had kind of that humorous bent to them I can recite a lot of those to you word for word in a way that I couldn't some of the other ones that haven't had that particular bent to them. And I think that just like speaks to the power of humor as a tool for internalizing these very earnest um, prayer, like petitions to, uh, that we offer up to God. Um, one of the prayers that I've written is uh, for when one has the opportunity to be petty. So it's just like, you know, I feel like that's one of the ones where it has the best balance of like earnestness, um, but then also kind of that tongue in cheek, like, yes, like we all experience this and it's funny to think about, but like, it can also be very destructive um, if it's not checked. But in the, in, in the checking of that pettiness, there can be a humor that allows us to move from a place of sh like self-shaming to mm -hmm. a place of um, just like, openness to, to the ways in which God is going to allow us to let go of certain things or to move on. 
So yeah, that would be one of my favorites. Um, what are, what are my other favorite ones? I really liked, I think there was one that you wrote that was like for early 2000s, I think it was like for early 2000s hip hop, oh, which really, yeah. which really yeah. is my, my love language yeah. um, in so <laughs> many ways. And it was just like, just reference after yeah. reference for yeah. like different songs. And I was like, yes, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. One of my favorites. Um, yeah, so there's ones that are just kind of like, the, the, the main thrust of those is like, um accessibility to and of relevance um kind of opening up the idea that oh like god cares about the music that i listen to or god cares about um when i'm about to go on a first date with someone and there's i think the the elements always end up being like cultural references scriptural references um and then of course there's always certain certain um forms that the, the the prayers take so there's like always kind of a, uh, a a title of god and address to god at the beginning and it always closes with some type of invocation of the trinity and so for me that's another way in which we're again falling into the the structure in a way that um, is just very dependable and also aids internalization knowing that there's always going to be these certain elements that pop up so yeah, that's been a that's been a huge part of the project for me as well. What have been some of your more uh, popular prayers, just in general? Like, what are ones that you've gotten like a lot of people been like, "Wow, this was like really helpful," or really, it really kind of spoke to something in me, or they just really thought it was fun or funny? Yeah, um, I think sometime in March I posted a collect for uh, for like for a global pandemic. Um, and so I think that's probably one of my most, like highest engagements um, on Instagram. Um, and I always try to write um, something that is general enough to where it can apply to anything that would fall under the umbrella of that title. And thankfully like global pandemics don't come on, come around super often, but like <laughs> I, would, I would imagine that like maybe a hundred years from now, if there was another global pandemic, those same words would ring true. And I think that's why I got the response that I did to that, where it's like, yeah, we, sometimes you need something that is both highly specific to the moment, but then also has enough staying power to expand. Um, so not just a prayer for like the, the time specific things that we're going through right now, but something that hits where we are, but also kind of pulls from the past, um, speaks to the future. And so I think, yeah, the global pandemic one was an, exa was an example of that. Uh, I posted one more recently uh, entitled For When Love Feels Hopelessly Elusive. And I got a, yeah, it's kind of solid response on that one where, again, it's just kind of like voicing concerns that aren't usually brought into the place of prayer, the place of worship, but need to. And it's just a matter of like, someone giving someone giving the permission and then once the permission is given sort of the floodgates open and you realize oh like god does care about the fact that i've like been trying really really hard to put myself out there meet people and it just hasn't been working out so yeah i would say the, the ones that um it's the for me the success of the project has not so much been my ability as a writer so much as it is like 
a new concept that's meeting a demand. Um, like there, there, there was a demand there for something that didn't exist yet. And um, just thinking about it in terms of like someone going on Shark Tank and, you know, pitch, pitching a product where it's not like the most in, ingenious product in the world, but it's like, oh yeah, I, I'm trying to think of, think of a good Shark Tank product. Um, I'm, I'm I always think of the one where it was like, it was like when you shave your beard, there was like a cape that you could like hook to the mirror. So it would catch yeah. all of your, that's like the one that I think of. Cause I'm like, yeah, I, I need yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It's not, yeah, exactly. It's not as if like the, the making of the product took like amazing engineering skills, but it's just like a great idea to solve a very like common problem and to meet a demand uh, that was always there, but just didn't know where to be directed. Um, so yeah, I think similarly with the prayers, it's just a matter of um, kind of giving people permission to to pray to God about certain things that they may not have realized that God cares about. Yeah. So um, I think just even as evidenced by like the engagement that you get on your um, on your Instagram and I would say just kind of in general, you know, with books like Every Moment Holy kind of becoming more, we're, we're seeing a lot more of these like liturgical sort of prayer styles being promulgated throughout um, just kind of, you know, general worship and Christendom and stuff like that. What do you think is kind of happening in terms of like that shift happen or, you know, like why is that shift happening of a lot of people are becoming more like interested in it and more like, is it just like really trendy now? Is it very like, that's like the cool thing to do is to be like yeah. Anglican and, and, and high church or, or is there something like deeper kind of going on there? Yeah. I mean, I think everything that you mentioned, there's some truth to it. Um, I think, you know, my, my first thought is um, the whole ex-evangelical movement or the evangelical exodus um, where there are folks like me who grew up in the tradition and then came to a point where we had to uh, remove ourselves from it for a little bit in order to get, gain some distance in order to kind of um, evaluate it critically. Um, so for me, I had the luxury of three years of seminary to do that, but not everyone has that luxury. But I had the, yeah, I had the chance to come into a progressive Christian space and realize not only are there other ways of doing Christian spirituality that don't fit into the, the boxes of what I am familiar with. Um, but also there's a way in which I can actually integrate the, what I see as the best of the different spaces that I've been a part of. So yeah, I had to kind of, you know, deconstruct, reconstruct. Um, I always use the phrase, um, I was like wet concrete. And I think I mean, people coming into their early twenties, maybe late teens, or maybe as late as their early thirties um, are often coming up against that, that task of, okay, I was faithful to, to engage deeply with the tradition that I was given, but what faithfulness demands of me right now is to engage in good faith with all these other ideas and these other practices of engaging with God. Um, and then to also evaluate theologically how that affects questions of justice and identity and so on and so forth. 
So all that to say, I think when people, when a lot of our generation and Gen Z have come up against that um, sort of crossroads, a lot of them have chosen to move away from the evangelical tradition for a little bit or forever. And so I think in those cases, it's a lot of people have this, have a similar experience to, to mine where it's like, oh, it's, I did not know that you could be, I did so for me, I, when I worked at the church in, um, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I was teaching Sunday school for like second graders and we did a unit on saints. And so for, for me to be teaching these like seven-year-olds about St. Augustine and St. Patrick, St. Catherine of Siena was just like mind blowing to me because I had not heard of any of these names until seminary. So yeah, just like that's, that's an illustration of engaging with the richness of the tradition of the tradition and just not not um cutting yourself off from from the from a source of so many really amazing things that can really enrich your faith and help you to uh to move through those tough times that where, where you're spiritually dry so yeah that's a lot, very long way of saying i think part of it part of the this whole resourcement movement uh return to the sources is kind of connected to people just young people looking for something more robust than what they've experienced. I think there's a trendiness aspect of it too. Um, um, and so it's, yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of like when the trendiness wears off and the smoke clears, what will be left and who will be left. Um, but yeah, I think it's also just, um, it's lar more largely just kind of a, um, a, a revival movement, I would say, where um, the, the needs of the time that we're in demand um, richer, more robust resources than what we have heretofore known. Mm, definitely. So I want to shift to an article that you wrote for, is it Earth and Altar magazine? Yes. So I want to shift to an article that you wrote in that talking about basically finding your identity as somebody who is both black and who uh, is also um, in an Episcopal kind of space. And for me, it raised um, a lot of questions and honestly, a lot of things that I've wrestled with as well, um, not being black, but I, I think for me, I have a lot of very like Anglican sensibilities in the sense that kind of like you were saying, um, like I really, at Trinity in particular, I really kind of fell into the liturgical style of worship because it wasn't based on feeling. And for me in that space in my life that I was in, that was something that was really impactful because just, you know, like I could come to church and be like really not in the mood to be there or to be like worshiping or anything like that. And it was just like this kind of like anchor and this consistency of the liturgy that was really sort of beautiful and really kind of helped ground me spiritually in so many ways. Um, at the same time, I think I also, you know, I also grew up in a very, in a quote unquote, non-denominational Southern Baptist church. Um, and even, I would say even there, like definitely not, in a, in a way that's comparable to a black Baptist church, but even there, the worship is a lot more extemporaneous. It's a lot more, um, again, not to the extent 
that you would see in a black church, but you, you sort of like, there's this dialogue that you have with the preacher of like, you go back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and even now I think the, the times that I've really visited, um, visited and been a part of, of black worship services is I really love and enjoy the sort of like the extemporaneous, the kind of like the, the, the fire, like in your bones, like being, being like released and, and kind of, uh, expressing yourself in that way and so but i think what happens for a lot of people is that they they feel like there's this kind of almost competition there and you you sort of spoke to that a little bit in your um in your article talking about how like your uh the the priest at the at the church does a good job of kind of combining those elements really well but even as a congregation um you're like the the congregation is very like we're going to follow the liturgy we're not going to be like you know we're not going to hoop and holler we're not going to you know talk back to the past we're not going to we're not going to say that or well and you know like all that kind of stuff that is is a little bit more common in um in black churches so how do you i guess my that long rambling aside would be how do we kind of take the best elements of these different worship traditions, which each have their own strengths and weaknesses and combine them in a place that we're, we're getting a more like holistic and well-rounded uh, sort of worship expression. Yeah, that's the million dollar question right there. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, I mean, I think the first thing is like, you have to have leaders who have real deep experience in those different places mm -hmm. to be able to imagine and then execute that kind of vision. Um, so the first thing is just kind of like, who are we, who, who are we raising up as leaders? So I'll use my tradition as an example. Um, I've had a frustrating time with uh, discerning for the priesthood in the Episcopal church. And I think, Part of it stems down to our system of, of ordination, the bureaucracy surrounding it is set up, was set up in a time where it was wealthy white men mm -hmm. and their wives could follow them around. Their wives didn't have careers. And uh, the main line was at the center of American culture. So we didn't have to like go out and be invitational people were just going to naturally come to us um, because that's where the social capital was and that's kind of where people's um people's worldview was oriented around but of course now we're in a very different time and i don't think that the bureaucracy of ordination has shifted to inviting people like myself who come from non-episcopal backgrounds who come from a variety of different traditions and different ways of worshiping and so if there's so many barriers for my getting into the position of leadership, then we're not going to be able to see those kinds of uh, worship blends, so to speak, um, imagined and then brought to life. So I would say, yeah, the first thing is kind of just like, how are we um, recruiting and training our leaders? And that, can, that doesn't have to be clergy, that can be lay leaders as well. Um, and then, yeah, well, if, like, if you were able to get to that point, then I would say from there, uh, it, it's kind of a, it's like a trial and error thing. And that's not what people like in worship. Like, you know, when, when someone introduces something new, 
it you're like, gonna get emails <laughs> yeah exactly you're gonna get emails especially if it doesn't like go off without a hitch right it's one thing if you like introduce something new and it's, you like kill it and everyone's like you know what I kind of hated that at first but like I couldn't be mad at it at the end of the day right. like like me with formal liturgy in general yeah um, but yeah if, if it's like you're trying something and you're like very earnestly trying to blend two different traditions but you know there's a like there's a trial and error process then that you know, cuts down all the more the the um, the willingness to to kind of see it through on the part of the congregation. So it takes, yeah, it takes this balance, uh, and like all pastors have to find this balance between consensus building and like prophetic uh, change in in a church. And there's a lot of pastors who like are very strong in one area, not super strong in another area. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would say like for me, my hope is that I can do the work of building the consensus and kind of having the continuity and the unity around what our core values and our story and our mission are, but then also kind of um, cultivate and forms people spiritually into this mentality of, okay, but the way that that's expressed can look very different. And if we're going to be hospitable to people of different backgrounds, we have to be willing to do the trial and error. Yeah, man, there's, there's a part of me that it's like, I think everything you said is just totally true. And then, but there's a part of me that's like, I think, and this is kind of just a separate conversation, but I think the American church is just so like consumerist that that is just a very hard thing to enact that like, it's because it's like, for me, I love both of those worship traditions. I, I really enjoy like a good uh, black gospel worship choir. And I also enjoy a very like sort of quiet, stoic Anglican uh, liturgy. And the thing is, is that some people it's like, they want one thing or the other. And they're like, you know, I can, I can kind of take my money or I can take my presence elsewhere if you're not going to give me what I want. And I think, for me, it's like, what's so hard about those, like about conversations about just worship in general, but even more about like liturgical worship is that you have to do kind of like you said, like you have to do a little bit of like convincing and being like, like you said, I really like what you said earlier that it's a, it's a worship service in that it's not like an event that I'm attending. It's like a thing that I'm participating in and it's not necessarily just it's not about me like consuming something it's about it's an experience yes yeah yeah, yeah. cringe when i when i see a flyer that's like come to this worship experience you're like no that's not (laughs) it is that's great and if you like have a certain experience with it that's awesome but like that is not first and foremost the baseline of what's happening yeah anyway sorry No, no no that's that's so true though i i think to me, like, that's one of the things that I've really wrestled with is I'm like, cause I think I find myself kind of like you, I'm in, I'm in spaces where I'm like trying to convince one party or the other that like both, <laughs> I'm like, listen, you should really try like reading the, the apostles creed before you do this. And they're like, what's, what's that? Or I'm like, listen, like it's okay if church goes an extra hour and it's okay if you like clap or like show yeah. show emotion in some way <laughs> or or if you talk back to you know it's like there's all these things that i'm like it's okay if you do that like that's a that's a 
you get something out of that as a Christian um, that you wouldn't otherwise be aware of. And it's okay to, like you said, draw on the, on the breadth of the tradition that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think just people get kind of stuck in that, that spiritual like homeostasis of like, you know, this is what works. I'm going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So all that to say, like, I'm, I'm curious to see kind of in the future, what, you know, like there's definitely a very big movement now of like wanting to, to incorporate different worship styles, wanting to incorporate liturgy and kind of like you said, like this move back to, to these ancient sources. So what do you think like in turn, if just based on your like predictions or your kind of like finger on the pulse, like what do you think is going to, are we going to see more of this or is it going to become even more like people kind of fall into their particular tradition and kind of go from there? Yeah. Wow. I'm giving you all the good questions today. Yeah, man. no, he's <laughs> to think about, but are so difficult to to put to put your finger on the poles. Um, I mean, I think that I see a divergence. Um, I see, and this like applies to politics too, and kind of just like general worldview. Like one one group of people that are just kind of like getting more and more into their silos, doubling down more and more, even against like evidence that's right in front of their face of like why they should maybe reevaluate their worldview. And then you have a group of people that are maybe come starting from a place that's not super open, but have sort of like had that Damascus road moment where they're like, you know, blinded by the spirit of God and then go listen to what's his name? Uh, the prophet who, and Ananias, um, they like, you know, they have the Ananias moment where they start to listen, they start to reconsider. And there's just like a, a flip of a switch. Uh, and then they're, um, before long, they're like, you know, very, very much changed in their worldview. So I think that applies to, to kind of like liturgical traditions and, and preferences as well, where I kind of see those two things happening. Um, yeah, so the question for me is always, where do I devote my time? Do I like see myself as a a martyr over here trying to like get these people to move the needle at all? Or do I see myself as a like front runner over here um, kind of just helping the people who already quote unquote get it or have been, have been already destabilized in some way. Cool. Well, we are just about out of time, TJ. Thank you so much for, um, you know, asking the hard questions and and giving really deep, thoughtful responses. Um, For those of you listening, again, uh, you can follow TJ at uh, Prayers from Terry on Instagram. He will be looking forward to your follow. Um, uh, Sir, thank you so much for coming on, and I hope you have a blessed rest of the day. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of you for everything you're doing and I wish you all the best with it. Thanks, buddy. I'll talk to you later.